Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 13. I'm Jeff Blair. I'm Matt Hackett. This week we're going to talk about uh, a few things we've done with the LDG infrastructure. We're migrating away from GitHub and onto AWS. Uh, and talk a little bit about some games we're working on. So I'm going to pick your brain about software. Because I think we talked a little bit in our last episode when we were interviewing Arno about like best practices and what kind of tools you've got and all that. I started on a Mac a few years ago and I've been continually trying to make my setup better and more efficient. And so when we've been talking about stuff, you almost always have a solution that you use for stuff that you've purchased. You have you always have some high-end software that you use for even the most simple tasks. Yeah, I buy a lot of software. I'm a big proponent of buying software, I think. Yeah, and it's not that I don't think that's great or don't agree necessarily. It's just that it's not the norm, at least from my experience. Most people I know use open source tools or they, just, they don't pay for it, basically. To be fair, I, I use open source when available. You know, if there's a really kick-ass open source program that I can use and not pay for, I'll do that. But oftentimes, I find that there's subtle features or just UI niceties of paid software that I just enjoy using more. So if it's something I use on a daily basis, uh, I have no problem paying for it, especially if it's like a one-time fee of like 15 bucks. I mean, if you think about that, it's really nothing. Yeah. So the more I uh, learn about the software you use, the more interested I am. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So the other day, I was trying to capture a color from my desktop. Um, I don't know what I was doing, but there was some image I didn't want to have to bother you know, downloading or dragging to Photoshop or something. I just wanted one color. So I was trying to use whatever the built-in OSX utility is that does that. I forget. Digital color something digital color meter i think it's called digital color meter osx is strange because it has all these off by one little pieces of software that i just i wonder what the rhyme to their reason is of what they put in the app store what they bundle with osx for free what they put in iLife. there's all these different categories of the software that apple provides that kind of seems mysterious to me you know i think they're actually trending in the direction of having it all on the app store the mac app store because if you see like you have to upgrade Lion and install Xcode and things like that through the Mac App Store now. Right. So it's really just one channel for apps. And so all the iLife stuff has been kind of individualized. And so you buy numbers or pages or whatever individually on the Mac App Store. Right. But anyways, I actually buy a lot of uh, software on the Mac App Store because there's a lot of these little apps. So Color Snapper is an app that I really like. It's yeah. basically like a, you just grab a pixel, a color from the screen, and it has a history. So some of the niceties is that it has a history of, a, of all your recently used colors and it can convert between rgb and hex very easily so this is a perfect example of how you can actually use money to make your experience better you know yeah yeah i mean th this isn't always the case like i know this sounds like an obvious thing but sometimes there just isn't a better choice or like you know everyone's stuck at the same price point there is no premium offering available um so i i had this really poor experience with trying to drop like a, pick a color from my desktop right so I ended up just dragging it to Photoshop and doing it that way. And I was like, okay, screw this. I know that Jeff probably has a solution, you know, and because every time I ask you about something, even if it's just this tiny little thing, like, oh yeah, just grabbing a color, like what a simple task. And like, you can use any number of programs to do it. There's browser extensions and there's yeah. all kinds of apps, right? And you, you had a color snapper and I, I basically, I've been trying to do this is yes, I kind of have that same commercial attitude that everyone seems to have um, about iPhone and similar apps where it's like the oatmeal where even though if it's just $1, like I'm wasting time 
researching why I want to buy something, I should just do it. But I mean, I'm, I'm a consumer like anybody else, so I, I tend to do that. So this time I was like, no, I want to try this thing that Jeff does that seems to work great for him where he just spends money on what he thinks are reasonable things that'll make his development life better. So yeah. I just went, okay, five bucks, sounds fine, do it. And I used it and like it was such a great experience because like you were already on IM. So I went from like, ugh, this color dropping experience was terrible. I, I, I am you, Jeff, what do you suggest? You said color snapper. I went app store. I went search, download, done, opened it, dropped the color, changed the preference, got it. Just exactly how I wanted it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like in the same amount of time that you would have taken a screenshot, imported it into Photoshop, grabbed the color and export it to whatever your editor was. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So the only part of that experience that was not ideal was the initial bump of having to like download the software and you know change a single preference or something but like now that process is so streamlined it cost me five bucks which like i'm not that great of a consumer i I waste more money than that all the time on you know bad purchases or i ordered too much food or or whatever the hell and for five bucks i now have a better development environment yeah it's great i have a ton of software like that another one i really like is called kaleidoscope and i use that for diffing um, and it's got like image diffing and it's got various ways to see the the source code diffs. I think it's about 15 or 20 bucks. It's actually by the same people that made versions. Versions. What, uh, it's what SVN is... client for Mac. Oh, Anyways, okay. it's a very nice piece of software. I love it. Right. Works great with Git on the command line. Hmm, nice. Yeah. So um, we've actually been moving away from GitHub, which which we'll talk about in a minute. But So that was one of our very first things when we were starting to be like, hey, maybe we can move off of GitHub. We wanted to know about viewing diffs because they do have a really great user interface for that. So it's really interesting. Like GitHub got me into Git, and the whole reason I use Git is because of GitHub. And I'm getting a lot better with the command line, but you know, there's still times where I really need that visual diff, especially when I'm merging code or like trying to review what someone else has done to a repository when I'm pulling in changes. And for me, like diffing on the command line just doesn't cut it. Like I need a kind of visual differ, and GitHub was that, and Kaleidoscope provides that for me now. Yeah. So this was actually my first experience with, um, I think, working with you and seeing that you had like superior software, right? So what I was doing was uh, at the time, this was, I don't know when this was, a year or two ago. So we were pretty new to Git and I was already kind of bad at it. So I I was um, trying to look at a diff and I had plain text, single color, and I was just looking at a command line. And you were like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, what? And then we went over to your computer where you, you typed, you know, just something like git diff, but you had in this, um, you'd set your uh, environment variable, however that works, to point to Kaleidoscope. So you typed the same command I did, but yours was in this separate application where it was like, it's really gorgeous interface and it's really slick environment for like, you know, this code stays, this code goes, that kind of stuff. And then it's got like onion skin um, for viewing image changes and all that good stuff. And... I remember being like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And then you were like, yeah, it's a great program called Kaleidoscope. And I'm like, I got to go get that. 15 bucks. And I'm like, what? Damn it. And the, like, the moment that happened, I felt like, oh, I got to do my due diligence. I got to research this. And I looked into it and I found a free version and it was kind of shittier. And like it didn't work with it or that, this or that. And like I think back on that, at the, on that time and I was like, if I had just sucked it up and spent the 15 bucks, here's what would have happened. Seriously, I, I would have bought it. I would have used it. I would have been like, this is great. And then once in a while, I probably would have had a question or two for you. Like, 
hey, how do you do this? Or like, hey, this doesn't work as I expected with fucking, you know, JSON or MP3s or something. Right. And I would have had this much better developer environment. Whereas like now to this day, the only improvement I've made is I, I have uh, uh, syntax highlighting in my diffs on the command line, which is a a an improvement. <laughs> but <laughs> you still have a superior developer environment and you, you use your, you use Kaleidoscope daily. Oh, daily. It is like, if you think about it, I've used, if I had it for a couple of years now, at least, at least two years, I use it every day, many times a day. So $15 is like, it's a no brainer. Yeah. I don't know what the problem is. I, cause I see it in my own behavior as a consumer. I, I hear about it as like a frustrating point from other developers and I, I don't know what to do about it. It's interesting. Cause I mean, the games industry has the same problem, right? Like there's that oatmeal cartoon that talks about agonizing over 99 cent purchase of an app you know an app store game yep. and then buying your daily mocha frappuccino latte at starbucks for five dollars so i wish i could go back and uh have just done that but well I you can not. just do it now and then you'll be fine but jeff it's 15 dollars. that's so expensive suck it up <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding it would totally be worth it i, I need to do that Anyways. especially since we did actually just move all of our stuff off of github so now i have to figure out my own diff viewer that's true and so there's a reason we did that, actually. I made a blog post about it yesterday, but I'll go over it briefly here. Mm -hmm. um, basically, we've been using GitHub and Jekyll and Pages to host our website and all of our repos. So GitHub was causing you uh, us, us some problems. Yeah, there were several issues. Um, first, we're not really big fans of their pricing model. I mean, obviously, that's kind of a business decision on their part, but you know, we don't really like it. Ten private repos for $25, I think, is... And there's something confusing about that too. Someone pointed this out on our blog. There's there's something like the prices are different depending on whether you're uh, an organization or just a single individual. Well, I believe that the collaborators' number is different on businesses as well. But anyways, whatever the the rationale is, that they have a different perspective on how they should charge for Git repos than right. we want to pay for, which is fine. Um, yeah. But you know, the upshot of that is that if we're not using their services to us repos, we probably don't want to use Pages. And Pages also has some problems for us, like. You know, it goes down sometimes, you know, DDoS attacks, and it also goes, uh, we had timeout problems and other issues. But the point is that we didn't really feel in control of our own destiny when it came to our website hosting. And so we wanted to find a different service um, and be able to get unlimited private repos for Git hosting and things like that. So we looked around at it at various different places, um, contemplated like Linode and things like that. And we actually eventually settled on as Amazon Web Services. And they have a whole suite of web services that you can basically build out your tech stack on. And so what we're doing right now is hosting our websites out of S3, which is just a scalable storage system. And since they're all Jekyll-based static websites, like that works amazingly well. And then we're running an EC2 instance where we host all of our Git repos and we just push and pull from there. And we have, you know, unlimited, they're all technically private because they're behind SSH, but. Man, I love having static websites. Anyone who's heard us talk for any amount of time knows that we have develop web development backgrounds, you know, so. Right. Working on websites is our bread and butter, and you know they're all they were all dynamic websites. You know, our currently our our stack like lostdecadegames.com is all static files. I really like that because like we want to focus on game dev now, right. and so we don't want to be dealing with all of these problems about like scaling the web app on the back end and things like that. I feel like since we already did web development for a long time, and when we're hoping to like kind of move on from that, it should be like we have the web development stuff figured out. We do it really well and we do it quickly and we put it aside and move on to the stuff that we're really trying to do, you know? Yeah. And I feel like like the static website lends itself so well to that because all the problems that are really 
hard to handle that excellent web developers do really well, like like scaling and you know like a database latency and all and on the sharding and all that crazy bullshit. Like we're like our current website is just ecstatic like and it's so fucking fast. Yeah, it's so easy to manage. It's great. And S three is even better than EC two because we don't have to worry about any scaling issues. Like you can set up load balancers and things like that within your EC two setup, but with S three, it's just like it's done for us. Man, we wanted scaling so bad when we first started working on Lost Decade Games. It's one of the very first projects. So, so Onslaught was the first game we were working on, and and we entered it some contests and stuff. But then Chrome Web Store was launching, and we got really paranoid about scaling because we didn't know what the hell Chrome Web Store was going to be like. You know, I mean, when when Google has a new product, there's only a couple ways it can go. It's like it's going to be a huge hit with tons of traffic, you know, like billions of hit over, hits over a month or something, you know. Or it could be the case of what actually happened where there's, you know, traffic kind of just kind of trickling in. But we were kind of scared because we wanted to put our best foot forward. And this was going to be a lot of the first time a lot of people would be, ever have been hearing about us, you know. But to be fair, even a small launch for Google is enough traffic to topple most individual servers. Yeah, exactly. So we weren't comfortable with putting up our game on either one of our personal servers. Like you were on DreamHost and I was on, I think, Slicehost at the time. And we were like... Well, I mean, it'll hold up to any kind of regular traffic, but like, I think a good slash dotting would kill it. And Google has way more power than that at their fingertips. So, right. so anyway, we, we went down the route the the route of uh, Google App Engine, and the reason we did that is because of the at the time it was free um, for like a really excellent generous cap, you know, on the on the free portion. So we we were paying like pennies a month, and the only downside, which kind of sucked for us, is we had to learn Python. And do yeah, stuff that way. I was really unhappy that their only choices were Python or Java, both languages I can't stand. It does not surprise me coming from Google, though, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, they love that, both that, those languages. Yeah, that does suck for guys who just don't want to learn it and don't really like it. Well, it's the only reason I love Amazon, right? Because, like, if the Amazon used Provision, a Linux box, and it's got nothing on it, basically. I mean, it's got, like, Vim or BI and, like, you know, a couple other things. It's got Perl, I think, installed by default. But, like... Nice. It's just your bare bones instance. You can do whatever you want. You can install whatever interpreter you want. Yeah. So this is like like Amazon's web services are, are what we wish we had like two years ago. It actually feels kind of like working at Yahoo. Uh, I don't know if huh. you remember working with servers at Yahoo, but it was very much like ops kind of took care of the servers and they just kind of gave you domains to remote into and install software using their Yum or AppGet equivalent. Yeah. So they had Yinst. Yeah, the inst- yeah. Y install, Yahoo install. It was such a good pro- great program, but it feels a lot like that. You basically just provision the server in the cloud, you SSH in, like install a bunch of software, whatever you want to do, copy things over, um, and you're good to go. I don't know. Yinst always felt kind of overloaded to me. It had that whole thing where you also used it to restart Apache. Yeah, it was kind of an all-in-one. It installed packages and also controlled services and other things. All kinds of crazy crap. Yeah. It felt like the iTunes of <laughs> server... Management. Tools, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's only like a few thousand people in the world who even know what the hell Yinst is. So. Well, at least 14,000. That's true. Probably like 20,000, 30,000 over the years. Maybe. <laughs> Anyways, it's a great experience. I love AWS so far. And uh, they actually have a free usage tier, which is great. So we're basically paying nothing Yeah. right now. So we're, we're in the process of migrating, but we are live using AWS, right? Uh, on the website, yeah. Uh, our website is currently hosted out of S3. Um, I'm still banging out a few issues, but it's mostly working. And we're moving up uh, our, our Git repos over currently. 
we're just removing everything from Bitbucket and we're removing our private stuff from GitHub and we're going to put up on our EC2 server. Yep. Nice. And so we'll still keep GitHub as our public-facing repository storage. Oh, GitHub is so easily the the best place to ho- host open source software. Like, I'm at the point where if your code isn't on GitHub, I'm just annoyed with you. <laughs> like, w- what else the hell is there? I'm going to download a zip. What? Well, there's like Bitbucket and things like that, right? You can clone it. We yeah. actually use Bitbucket for a little bit. Huh? We talked about it on the blog. Yeah, but I don't know. It, it does. It, it feels like... Uh, a GitHub competitor who doesn't do anything as well, and they just have some important differences. I mean, like critically important to us. Yeah. But it, it does very much feel like you're using a, a catch-up product, which that doesn't feel as nice as it could, you know? No, I mean, no, I might no, be wrong. Feels... Maybe they've been around forever, but it's just how it feels. Well, I'm, I'm very much into the field of applications, as you as we talked about already. Yes, like you're willing to pay for... Pre- like, I really feel like you're... Uh... Actually, you know what? You had your own private GitHub account before we ever started doing Lost Decade together. I remember that because oh, yeah. you... When we first started working together, you were creating private repos and sending me invites. And I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. I didn't even know at the time GitHub monetized yeah. at all. So from very early on, I had like the most basic plan, you know, where you have like a few private repos because I want to use GitHub for all my code hosting. Mm. And I have projects that I want to be open source. But of course, I have projects that I don't want open source. Right. But I also like having everything in one place. And so that's why I got that account. And then I also needed to have a few contributors because I had a project I was working on with a couple of guys. And, you know, GitHub was a nice place to collaborate. Yeah. It's so great for that. I mean, I, I love competition and I, I would love to see someone else do something really innovative with Git and social elements and stuff, you know. I, I, th- I think it is starting to be a little bit less that I'm completely in love with, with GitHub and more that I'm in love with, um, you know, the interactions built up around GitHub. The thing I like about Git and the reason I like Git more and more every day is because like moving our repos from GitHub to another server is so easy. Oh, dude, yeah. You just add another remote. Yeah. And then now we can push to both locations very easily. Yeah. We have another backup, essentially. That's something else I really love about this setup, too, is so with the website right now, there really wasn't a good way for us to share code, which is bullshit with a versioning system. So what we had in place was like we'd have or the repo name was lostdecade.github.com. And the, because of the way we had it set up, if you push to master, it would push live. So if I wanted to share code with you via the Git repository, I would have to do something weird like... I guess we could have created a branch called like draft or something. And we yeah. could have pushed and pulled that branch. But now we, we can both just work on master, no problem. We don't have to branch, which feels like, you know, I'm going to go over here to make some new feature, which I, I guess I can maybe see that with I'm going to go over here and make a post. But yeah. holy fuck, one branch per post. That's, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's not scalable. So... Well, it's, it's scalable in terms of like the actual source control system, but... It's just annoying from a management perspective, I think. Yeah. So I love this now. We can just say, you know, git push GitHub master, and we can keep the code open source. But then we can also add a remote for our server and be like, you know, git push. Origin. Origin. Wait, I get that mixed up, don't I? No, that's right. Git git push GitHub master, git push origin master. And origin would be where we both like sync up our code. Origin is like our dev server. Right, right. Yeah, our git server. Yeah, that, that feels like a really like nice setup i like that and then we have separate remotes called prod um that we push to that actually have post receive hooks that build the website using jekyll and then push it to s3 yeah i love those post commit hooks so basically a a deployment for us is git push prod master done yeah that's really cool yeah and what's neat about it too is you can watch the push happening you can see like okay connecting the server you know um pushing merging blah 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 and then when that post commit hook kicks in, you can see it 
like, you know, building website and all that good stuff. So when it comes back and it says success, if you don't see any errors, you should be able to go to the website and refresh the page and your changes are there. Yeah, they're done. And there, it was so mysterious at, um, well, when we were using GitHub pages, I always felt like I would push and then... A I minute would, to 10 minutes later, it would work yeah, or it or just it wouldn't ever work. Yeah, we never got any notices. And, you know, that's something else that always kind of irked me was... Um, so we both had contacted support on separate occasions and we never really... Uh, well, we would hear back, but then we would never like get freaking fixed, you know. We just yeah. kind of trail off, and the conversation would just kind of end. And what kind of happened with? Uh, so I filed a ticket asking why our website wasn't pushing. What they figured out was it's because we were putting Lostcast, like this show, the repos. The repos were inside of the repository, which that ended up getting pretty damn big. It was like 500 megs or something, right? Right. So there was a timeout. Like they were trying to transfer the files, and it wasn't happening in five minutes, so they were canceling it out. But the whole time, they were just very like, oh, here's your problem. Get those files out of there. Bye. And I'm like, that's, yeah, yeah. if that's their policy, that's fine. But when I'm going, I'm looking at what we're paying for. There's a 2.4 gig plan, and it feels like that should be... Because GitHub Pages is just an additional feature on top of the pro account, you know? No, well, GitHub Pages is basically a free feature. Because anyone can use it. But, but you can only do the, the special domain stuff we were doing if you're a paid customer. You can only use custom domains if you're a paid customer. And we were doing that. Of any level. But I feel like the plans detail that you get 2.4 gigabytes of like repo hosting. I don't know if that translates to pages or not. It's very unclear about what See, you get. See, that's the get. thing. But, but rather than discussing that with me and talking about how we can make that work or something, they were just, you hit the limit. I feel like um, pages is kind of like a, a cool feature that they launched, but didn't really you know want to like set up a service like SLA type situation. I feel it. like they didn't um, think about that hard enough. Like what that really entails is hosting other people's stuff. You right. know, they pretty, like with us, we only got to 10 episodes of a podcast before we hit a really obnoxious, like soft-ish, well, it's a hard limit, but it's like the the pushes were still working. It just wasn't building the page, like the to the website. Right, right, It was right. weird. Yeah, it wouldn't copy it over to like the new, the new location. Or weird, errorless messages with no explanation and just a dismissive attitude from the provider. Basically, that's what I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Still love GitHub to death. You know, I, I will still continue to use them for public-facing stuff, and I love it. But, like, just as a small business. Well, here's the thing. Like, we're a small business, and we're trying to have a, like, cheap, efficient, right, easy way to host our web content that so it's scalable and it's easy for us to update and not have to manage a whole bunch of servers ourselves. Right. And so the bottom line is the GitHub just wasn't working for that purpose, and maybe that's not what they want to do, right? They don't care about that. That's not their primary mm-hmm. directive. I, I wonder where they are getting most of their money. It seems like maybe um, uh, like commercial stuff, right? Like uh, maybe if a whole company signs up. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have a lot of people like that. Hmm. Well, we know at least a couple of companies that are paying max, max yeah, plans. Yeah, they really quickly hit that. They've got a max limit. It's like I have no idea, 250 bucks a month or something for 50 plus private repos or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that probably adds up quick. Anyways, AWS seems really cool so far. It's got a lot of scaling options. It's kind of built for this purpose in mind, right? It's like run your tech stack for your business in the cloud. Like that's its purpose. It's really so cool. That's why I think it's aligned a lot better with what we're trying to do. Yeah. I love the scalability of it. I love not having to sit there and like just worry about, because whenever your um, your server goes down is because it's getting a lot of traffic, you know? And that's when you really want to harness that the most. Yeah, yeah. It's like the worst time to go down. Like you wouldn't care if it went down when no one's there and... It's midnight and, you know, most people are asleep or doing something else. Like, you you want it to work when it matters. That's not when you want the stress of, like, no, my fucking server died. Uh, yeah, good times. 
So what other software do you have that you use that makes your OSX developer environment more awesome? It's kind of funny, actually. There, there's like basically three things that I use almost every day, right? And it's TextMate, which I did buy. Right. Kaleidoscope, which we talked about already. Yeah. And... You know what we didn't talk about? What? Divi. Oh, Divi. I love Divi. Did so you di- show Divi to me? I did, yeah. I love Divi. I use it... I don't just use it every day. I use it every, like, 30 minutes I'm on my computer. Oh, and yeah. Sometimes I'm using it, like non-stop it's kind of funny because basically divi is a bug fix for osx i feel like really well yeah because like the window management of osx is terribly broken in my opinion maybe it's mm. because i used windows for you know x amount of years before coming to a mac right but i i feel like the the mac windowing like maximize minimize totally agree is just completely fucking borked it feels accidental it yeah. feels like they're like well we've got this button between these other buttons which you know what they do and this one does some... I feel like they're just doing it to be different. It's really annoying. But So Divi kind of solves that problem and allows you to like full screen, um, not full screen, full screen, but like maximize windows very easily. It also allows you to drag windows into various partitions of the screen. So you can do like one that's completely the left half, one that's completely the right half. So what I use Divi for 99% of the time is I have keyboard shortcuts set up. Uh, one of them is I hit something like Apple Shift tilde. And it goes. It takes the application and makes it biggest window or biggest viewport. Yep. And then I've got um, Apple Shift one and two, and those are put window on left fifty percent, put window on right fifty percent. Yeah, I have those exact. Same I use shortcuts. that constantly. I'll go into Finder and I go and and new new. I make two windows. And I go bam bam. I throw them in one one on the left, one on the right. Yep. And then so like it's pretty common that I'll want to drag stuff from one folder to another or whatever. That's such a quality of life improvement having that windowing capability. I love Divi. I have that to the point almost where when I don't have it open like Alfred, I use Alfred just nonstop throughout any of my computer using experiences. Like uh, I've almost got Divi at that level where when it's not open, I'm like, "Uh, what do I do? Oh man, Alfred is another thing that I absolutely adore. I've actually bought their power pack um, and not because I use the advanced features all that much, but just because I love Alfred so much, I just wanted to give them money. See, I feel like that's not a common attitude. I feel like it's a great attitude, you know, wanting to pay people for, for doing good and We've actually know had a couple of emails from people. We like what like what? That are like, hey, do you have a donate button? Like I'd love to give you guys some money. Yeah, that's true. I mean it happens over once in a while, but yeah. Yeah. I guess just happy developers who happen to have enough money you kinda of wanna well, come on. divvy it out. Yeah, Tell me that Alfred does not like change the way you use your computer. It has, it has. I, I would give them money, gladly. What yeah. is what is the power pack uh it's just like you get extensions and like some other advanced feature bullshit that <laughs> i don't use all that much you're not selling it very well no i'm sure it's great i mean like i guess like for me the free version does 98 percent of what i want it to do yeah which is mostly just like launch stuff from a shortcut key and not have to like fuck around with icons and folders and finder yeah exactly it's like a global command line for your os that does all kinds of cool stuff yeah Alfred is so good that I have upgraded my, what would you call it, application launcher? Command launcher? Sure. I've updated whatever that is twice now. I started off with Quicksilver, and then I felt like I upgraded to Google Search Bar. Yep. Google Quick Search, I think. Google Quick Search. And now I'm on Alfred, and it feels like the fastest, most well thought out. And that's saying a lot because Quicksilver had pretty long legs. Like That thing was pretty prevalent, and then they were competing with Google, who are known you know, experts at simplifying and being fast and all that. And then Alfred is, to me, beat them out with their offering. So good for them. Well, the quick search box kind of like languished and just stopped getting updates. Oh, is that what it was? It was kind of one of these like Google projects where they're like, check out this cool thing we did. And now we're done. 
Yeah, well, I guess that was probably also before whoever just became CEO. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was a while ago. Who Eric Schmidt. Yeah, it was a while ago. So maybe Schmidt became CEO again and, you know, they started cutting stuff. Hmm. And maybe that was part of it. It was like, I don't know. So anyways, it's kind of a very rambly talk about um, software. But one of these days, I'm going to make a, a blog post kind of detailing all of these cool little software packages that I use um, and then kind of link off to them and how much they cost and why I really like them. Nice. Because there's more I just can't think of at the moment, which is, you know, should be saying something. But There was one I asked you about recently, I think. Something was taking up way too much memory on my computer. Oh, Daisy Disk. Daisy Disk. Yeah. So one of the things I, I love being able to do is visualize how much space things are taking up on my hard drive. Yeah. So I can ruthlessly call things. Axe it. Yeah. And so I was using this free program called Disk Inventory X, which is actually a really great program. Oh, I think I'm using that. And it's free and it does exactly what you want. But Daisy Disk does that same thing, but it's prettier. The user interface is much nicer. That's it? Yeah, pretty much. Is it easier to use? Well, yeah. Like okay. the UI is better and like the results are better and you can drill down into results in a nicer way. But but how did you even go about finding that? Because I think what I did was I asked you and you had some paid thing and this was a while ago before I have started to be like, okay, I'm going to try this, you know? And I was like, eh, batches. And eventually I just like got... Uh, disk utility x and uh, it did what i wanted and i was like great so how, how do you like you're using that it's going fine how do you then be like because you know i've what? never liked disk inventory s completely like hmm. every time i use it i'm like oh this is kind of ugly huh like i don't know something about it just bothered me like it was free and it worked well enough but like it just wasn't the ideal experience that i wanted to have while i was seeing how much free space there was on my hard drive <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a thing that i do about once every year yeah yeah, yeah. like the, the most recent the most recent one I hit was I had recorded too many time lapses or something, and I was using up, like, 18 gigs of video. I think I try to remain pretty objective when I recommend things to you. Like, I, I told you not to buy Daisy Disk. I remember I said, try Disk Inventory X and see if you like it, and if it does what you need to do, then just don't buy Daisy Disk. So you understood that it was, like, a subjective thing where you're like, hey, maybe this looks great to you. Right. It just looks like ass to me. Or, yeah. or maybe it looks like ass to you, but you can't justify... 15 or 20 bucks or whatever it is for hmm. something you use once a year. I see. I don't use Daisy Disk all that often, but when I do, you know, I, I like to have a nice application. So. Yeah, I think that's part of it is, especially coming from, like, I, I grew up on Windows machines. I, I guess I would kind of say, like, the first couple of computers I was on were apples and shit, but, like, I, I came into my own as a developer on a Windows machine where I feel like a lot of that shit was free. Like, I grew up in a time when you had to fragment your computer defrag your computer like i don't know depending on what you were doing maybe every couple of days and hmm. you'd have this utility on windows which just you know i don't know came with it i don't remember it was underneath program files other or something you know and there was this little disk utility which would kind of visualize where your space was and it would fragment it for you and like i come from that rationale or not rationale but like that that mentality of this disk utility is free right so i think that's one of my hurdles like I, I've paid, I've always paid for games. You know, I, the one of the, I'm sure the first games that I ever played, I paid for. You know, so I'm more inclined naturally just to pay for games. But like utility software to me is is tough to pay for, especially since there's so many open source alternatives that are 95% of what you want. Right. And maybe they just don't look great or something. You know, one area around there where I saw the light, um, not even all that terribly long ago, was with the GIMP versus Photoshop. Oh man. That's such a big difference. I have extensive experience with the GIMP and Photoshop, and I can tell you firsthand on a Mac, to me anyway, 
The GIMP is shit. Anything that uses X Windows <laughs> on a Mac is shit. Oh, X I'm going to say that right now. X Windows on a Mac, Mac is a nightmare. On Windows, I think it was fine. I think that I was using it on Linux, though, where you don't have to mess with that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of made for Linux, right? Yeah, it's it's a different story on Linux, but like on a Mac, Photoshop feels like professional fucking grade software, whereas GIMP feels like this amateurish window into a, you know? Yeah, yeah. I it's agree. just not good. So for photo editing, I refuse to pay Adobe for Photoshop because I think it's completely overpriced. So it's is it because it's like I don't even know I have no no idea either other. It's like hundreds of dollars. Yeah, it's like for, I would imagine four hundred bucks. So off the top of my head, I would guess that Photoshop's four hundred bucks. Is that right? I, I don't know exactly, but it's in the hundreds of dollars. It's probably gotten cheaper. I mean, there was a time when Photoshop was like six hundred bucks. Fuck. I mean, I'm sure that's not recent, but it's still a very expensive piece of software. So I've got this great program called Pixelmator, which is available in the Mac App Store for twenty bucks. And it does most of what I needed to do with Photoshop. It has layering, you know, mm-hmm. it has layer groups, it has filters, it has like all the same basic stuff. I mean, it's not it's not complete feature parity with Photoshop, but it reads Photoshop files reasonably well. And if you're just generating things from scratch using its own file format, PXM, it works great. I think it says a lot that the primary reason to not use Pixelmator over Photoshop is that file format. Like if you had to be working with PSDs all day. You have to open them. You have to make sure that they're working with the right version. You have to export PSDs so that other people can open right. them and edit them. Like, it's it's really, at that point, a proprietary format thing. If, right? if your content pipeline is PSD, then you should be using Photoshop. But if you just need a program for image manipulation and you want to create your own PNGs or things like that for your games, like Pixelmator is great. I also feel like it's kind of an industry standard. Like, sometimes you'll see on, like, a skill set for a job position, you'll see Photoshop skills required or something, you yeah. know? And that, to me, is a big problem, too, because, I mean, if, if you're a professional artist, to you, you might love the idea of spending 20 bucks on Pixelmator and not having to pay Adobe their, like, outlandish prices, right? But that's just not an option, because, like, if you say Pixelmator to your average, like, hiring manager, you know what I mean? They're like, the fuck is that? Like, this I- person's an amateur or something i kind of feel like that's bullshit though because like totally is if i'm a visual designer and i use pixelmator let's just say like i'm not gonna have a whole lot of trouble transitioning to photoshop it's kind of like if you had gone to work at a company like raptor and they said well sorry we're looking for someone with coda experience like you have to know how to use the code editor and you're like well i use vim and i can create code so i'll learn coda in a day or through a week or whatever that's a good analogy like you really shouldn't ever say you have to have Photoshop experience. You just need to know how to work with digital media. Yeah. You know who I'd love to ask about this is my brother, John, who um, he's an environment artist at EA. And I bet he's got something similar because I'm pretty sure he spends all day in Maya. Right. But there, I mean, how, there's got to be so many different options. What if he got a job at a shop that used like 3D Studio Max instead? Blender. Or Blender or any of these things. Because w- with code, it definitely, like nobody gives a fuck. If, if you're a hiring developers in like in silicon valley and and you required your engineers to code in a specific platform like outside of certain areas where that's just the norm like flash like you're you're not going to hire anyone <laughs> yeah, exactly I, I wouldn't even have a conversation with, with someone who was like had a opportunity that was perfect for us or something and it was like and you have to use like fucking aptana or something or, or eclipse and i'm like why? But <laughs> I'm just not doing it. I think it's because code is basically plain text files. And so when you output stuff from Vim and I output stuff from TextMate, it's basically the same output. Mm-hmm. But someone 
unless they're exporting to PNGs, someone using Pixelmator and PSD have two completely different formats. Hmm. And so it matters. But, you know, I, generally it shouldn't, right? So I guess a question would be, does Pixelmator have, how does Pixelmator save its files? Does it have its own open format? Are they trying to go that direction or? I don't know if it's it's open or not. They have this file format called PXM, which is basically their version of PSD. Hmm. And uh, But it also exports to like PNG, JPEG and whatever else. Because man, I got to say, like I, I've I've been pretty intimate with Photoshop for the last, like oh, yeah? y- definitely the last year, Sounds you know? pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I, what I started doing about a month ago is I started um, importing all my porn into Photoshop first oh, just to kind of like make myself more intimate with Photoshop. And now I feel like we're uh, we're good friends That's and, great. and lovers. You probably spend more time with Photoshop than your girlfriend. <laughs> I might recently. That's sad. <laughs> Sorry, Anne. <laughs> No, but I spent a lot of time with it, and I'm getting more and more to the point where I feel like Photoshop is not enough with regards to stuff like it feels like every PSD is a giant project. Mm. I've, like every group I have is kind of a folder inside of like a code project, like like on that level, you know. I might have this, I might have a group or a layer of, of just what is data, you know. It, it's not actually any color values or anything. It's just like it's just binary pixels, but like it's really important to keep it this way because this is my guide for forming this other shape and that kind of stuff. And like some of the more complicated ones, like, Oh man, I did that album art for Joshua Morris's waveform two album. Mm-hmm. That motherfucking thing had like 200 Jesus. objects wow. that within them had three to five layers of shit, you know? Wow. Like that sucker was a beast. And like, I would have loved to have versioning. I've tried using Git with PSD files and like, I don't know. It just, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I don't know. Anyway, on the, on the same track as, like, if Pixelmator has their own proprietary format, then I don't really see how that gives them a legs up. But if they have an open format, if there's, like, Collada files, right, which is this open format, whereas I'm sure other, like, Maya probably has its own proprietary format. Yeah, yeah I'm sure they do. So but they also there, export to the open format, right? Yeah, exactly. So if there was some format that wasn't proprietary but it was open and, like, you could always export your graphic file, like a PSD was you know, this XML format or some shit. Hmm. That'd be so much better. Because then it wouldn't matter that I'm using Photoshop and you're using so Pixelmator. I think the problem, most of the problem for Pixelmator is that it does read PSD files, but it just doesn't have feature parity with Photoshop. Right. And so there's certain things like layer effects that it just doesn't, it can't do anything with. Right. So maybe it's not a problem of reading it. It's just a problem of they have to have feature parity in order to make that even work. So there'd be some like XML structure which would define, it would be like, hey, I would love to have a layer effect here. And then basically Pixelmator would read that. Ignore it. Yeah, and just ignore it. But then maybe like bubble up a warning. Right. Or like we give a suggestion or something like that. Man, that'd be great. I do hate proprietary formats. I, I don't like sending you a PSD and wondering if it's, I mean, that's, that sucks for both of us, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, maybe you're like, dude, this looks like shit. What the fuck? And I'm like, oh, you're missing this really essential layer or something, you know? Well, anytime I open a PSD in Pixelmator, I'm prepared for the fact that it might be fucked up. Yeah. So. I just hate shit like that. I, I feel like you are well within your rights to just want to use Pixelmator. It sounds like a like a good program, right? Yeah. Just because of the way that the industry is set up, Adobe has like this stranglehold. But you do much more art than I do, and so it makes more sense. Like the amount of art that I do, like I'm basically cropping, resizing, scaling. And Pixelmator does that like really nicely, and you don't have to worry about PSD. No, exactly. I just, I just take your PNGs, and I fuck with them until I get them in the state that I need them in, and then... I'm done, right? Right. So I don't even have to worry about the PSDs. But you spend a lot more time like making graphics from scratch. And so I think it's a little more important. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that makes sense. Is like if you're only going to use the basic features and your price is 20 bucks, and if you want to 
you know, if you're going to spend the next three, five days in Photoshop, then you have to pay us 400 bucks. I don't know. It still seems when you like, and it's hard, it's hard to put a, a dollar value on software, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, Photoshop could well be worth it for you at even a couple hundred dollars because of the amount that you use it. Well, let's see. So if, if I mean, if it's $400 and I spend a hundred hours in it, which I might do that in a month, you know, right. it's like four bucks an hour at that point, it's like bargain, you know? And it's not an ongoing cost either. Like once you've done a, a month of art, which you've probably done, yeah, yeah. then you're golden basically. Yeah. So anyways, I think the upshot is, is that you should pay for tools that make your life demonstrably better and also support, you know, developers. You know, we want people to buy our games because we want people to support the stuff we're putting out there. And same mm -hmm. thing with like, like the Alfred guy is just like, it's one developer and like a couple people helping him with like marketing and stuff, I think. Mm, that's cool. But it's a very like, you know, small indie shop. And it's just this one guy who's just writing this one program, you know, and I think that people like that, you should give money to so they continue to doing what continue doing what they love and making great software yeah so if i if i find out that a company making a piece of software is like a little indie shop i'm like a hundred times more likely to buy whatever it is they they have huh it's really interesting i don't know it just feels good to support people that are like you know i'm trying to make this my my full-time living and like i want to make this great software like it's really easy to connect with those people yeah well, you know, I mean, even halfway around the world you can relate so closely as people have this thing that they want to do and make that their living and they just want to sell products straight to people and all that you know yeah and it's like that's exactly what we want to do it's just a different type of product that's all it's such a good trend like it's such a good feeling transaction yeah you know it's kind of like imagine how we feel when someone buys one of our games you know remember when we first started selling games we were looking at like <laughs> the google checkout logs and we're like you know we read like every single name of a person yeah. that, that bought our game and it was like such a good feeling and dude I remember what we did was uh, when the Chrome Web Store first launched, we were looking at our um, merchant account on Google. And we were like, dude, look, people are giving us money for yeah. our games. This is amazing. And then we were looking through. We, like, we never actually looked at the, the merchant list before because uh, we didn't have a reason to. We didn't have anything for sale. But we went there, and Google had actually been buying the game for, like, months to oh, test yeah. the store. So we were like, oh. Like, I mean, maybe they weren't giving us money because they wanted to. Maybe they were doing it because they were just testing the framework. But still, we've been making money with this game for months. So we were like, okay, cool. <laughs> I do remember that. That was pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. But it, it slightly lessened the effect of like, we made our first dollar. Yeah, it's like, actually, no, you made your first $60 already. And that was two months ago. Maybe. And we're like, oh, cool. Well, that's great, too. Delayed high five. So maybe we should talk about some HTML5 games on this HTML5 games podcast. What are HTML5 games? Well, Matt, they're like Flash games, but they perform worse. <laughs> that sounds like ass, Jeff. <laughs> Why would they just go but play? They're getting better. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna go play some Flash games. Okay, sounds fun. You were um, you tweeted about something just earlier, Browser Quest. Oh, I did. Browser Quest is really great. I think it's it's very interesting that uh, Mozilla released this game and like. I think it's wonderful. Like, it's a very fun little experience. Like, it's polished. It has a lot of, like, depth even for, you know, for what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some really fun stuff in there that, that took some programming, right? Like, weapon drops and, like, it appears on your sprite. And so you can see the different helmet and mm -hmm. the weapon and armor that you're using. And there's various maps and there's achievements. And there's a bunch of little references, like, portal references. And uh, obviously, it's very Zelda-inspired. But I yeah. thought it was a great demo and I thought it was a very cool looking game i was very impressed yeah they had a lot of players playing it too yeah i mean it seems like they had like 1500 or something concurrent players so it's not a whole lot but did that just launch today yeah i believe so huh i guess it's been under stealth stealth mode because i have 
first I've ever heard of it. I've never heard of it. Anyways, I think you should check it out because I think it's great. I would love to make a game like that. I'll put it in the show notes. We've talked before about making an Onslaught 2 like that. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I think that we're trying to... Mozilla basically has like the money to pay a couple guys to develop a game with like zero monetization strategy, you know, yeah. for a few months. We're trying to feed ourselves and pay rent, unfortunately. Yeah, the thing about a game like that is it sounds like a blast, but it doesn't have um, any obvious monetization hooks. Like, we've talked before about what API we would use on the open web. Yeah. It might have to be something like PayPal, but at that point, we're going to be ripping people out of the game and tossing them off to a new tab or something. Like, that's it, not going to feel very right. natural in a world where people are used to just tapping a button on their phone, you know? And I think that we want to explore mobile just because it seems like the most obvious place for both HTML5 and for growth right now, you know? Well, the nice thing about mobile is that it's almost HTML5 or nothing. Um, I mean, aside from the app stores, obviously, but you know, if you're talking about web-based products because of the iOS flash lockout, you know, you only have one choice. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that's where we can shine in the mobile arena because there's really no other option right now. Hmm, that's true. You well, pull up- at least for web. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. check out Browser Quest. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I'd be interested to see how deep it is. I kind of get the impression it's not too terribly deep. Like, if you kind of spent an hour or two in the game, you'd kind of do everything there is to do. Um, so I feel like it's more of a prototype than anything else, but I could be wrong. I haven't spent very long hmm. playing it. But um, combat's kind of dull. It's definitely more of a tech demo than a, a fun, fun game, I think. Yeah. But it definitely has the makings of a fun game, and it has a lot of little pieces of great attention to detail that make it an interesting experience. Oh, we saw HTML5 shields in there. Oh, we did. That was great. I saw that on the guards, and I was like, what? I wonder if that's an Onslaught reference, or... I don't know. They could have come up with it independently. I mean, HTML5 shield. I don't know. No, Jeff. It's brilliant. No one ever can ever see that on their own. <laughs> That was a unique observation that only we had. Yes, exactly. Um, I would love if it was an Onslaught reference, or if at least they saw that and just like, oh, that's cool, we want to do that too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Either way would be great. Yeah. But probably not. Man, we, so we had a, uh, a couple of milestones recently. We, uh, we tweeted before about this uh, indie, I don't even know if it was indie, but it was just a game developer bucket list. And it was just a list of like 100 things you want to accomplish in your life or as your career as a game developer. Mm. And one thing that we saw just recently was, uh, I think it was our first fan-made video of Onslaught. Oh, yeah. I mean, I might be wrong about that. Like, I we haven't we don't exactly scour the web, but, you know, we've got alerts set up and stuff. And this is the first one that I found. We actually found two that popped up in last week. Yeah, yeah, that, that was great. One was uh, just seemed to be... It was like a review of the iPad app. Yeah, it was a review of the iPad app, Mike's Crazy Apps or something. That was yeah, really yeah. cool. And then it was just some random guy put up a (laughs) kind of like a video. Like a walkthrough. Summary. Yeah. yeah. Got to like the second boss and died or something. Oh, there was also that that one that was sped up. It was really fast. Did we find three last week? I didn't see the sped up one. You didn't see the sped up one? No. Was it good? No, I sent it to you. Remember you commented on it. But it sounds like something I might have done. Yeah, that's what it was. I was actually thinking of those two and I forgot about the Mike's apps one. Mike's crazy apps. So wow, we found a couple of onslaught videos. It's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that's nice. We can mark that off the list. So what are we working on now? We have two games in the pipeline. Lava Sword is nearing completion. Yeah, actually, I'm slacking ass on Lava Sword. I need I'm to slacking ass on Lava Sword too. I need to uh, do some performance improvements and then ship it. Basically, you know what the problem is? I, I'm just done with the current code base. The only way I'm willing to spend any more 
like any significant amount of time on Lava Sword anymore is if we rewrite it, which I think would be amazing. I think we should like double team it, you know, just the current code base. Like I, I just got it to the point where it's gross hmm. and it's, it's not so small that I can just rewrite it and it's hard to work with. Blah, I hate it. Great. So we're very excited <laughs> about Lava Sword. <laughs> <laughs> the game itself. I'm really pleased with J- Joshua Morris did a great job with the music and all the, some of the side effects he sent us, we put in just recently. Oh yeah. And they're really fun. It's actually shaping up to be a pretty fun little game, but, uh, we're getting past the last 10% to get it shipped. That is the hardest. It always, always the hardest. Like we got to 90% fairly quickly and efficiently in this last 10% of making it more than just a, you know, piece of crap demo has, has been tough. Yep. So we also have a uh, lunch bug. Yeah. Lunch bug, which we've both, both been really excited about the last couple of weeks. You made some great new graphics for lunch bug. I think you put them on Twitter. Yeah. Thanks. Those were so fun to make. I've just been iterating on them every single time. I think of anything that would make them better. And you suggested something just the other day that you're like, this would look better if you did this. Like I've just been going back at it, trying to be as relentless as I can until we get to the point where we don't have anything left negative to say. Yeah. I think that's where we want to be. And it feels close. So it's a, it's such a fun little puzzle game. I like it a lot, man. Like it took me a little while to get over the hump of not really understanding what the hell. And, and, and like, I'm getting this a lot cause I've had Anne play it. And, oh, we talked with uh, Shannon, who might be doing some music for us yesterday. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that she understood it either. I mean, no one's gonna. Like, we have to get that tutorial in, like, ASAP. Right. That should almost be the very next thing we concentrate on, because the game is at a reasonably shippable MVP state, you know? Yep. So both those games are coming along, and they're, like, like approaching finish line. It's really interesting how uh, Lunchbug started, though, is... I kind of wanted to make a puzzle game to kind of offset the arcade games we've been working on. Mm. And I decided to just take a game I liked and make some slight tweaks to it and then kind of go from there. And so I did, I took Othello, um, which is a game I, I really enjoy, which is basically like a game of capturing your opponent's pieces between your pieces and flipping them to be your color. So it's so the same game as Go, basically, right? Um, it's not the same game, but it's similar. Very similar. And you'd actually made... Uh, a reversey game before so you had a little bit of experience with those algorithms yeah i actually wrote a reversey game in html5 i don't know sometime last year sometime last year yeah it's huh, cool um but anyways i basically just took that concept of placing tiles on a board and then having that flip the color of those tiles to whatever the surrounding tiles were mm-hmm. uh, and then i added essentially some more color so when i started out it was like instead of black and white it was like red blue and green hmm and I started from there, and then I started playing with that concept. And then I added a tile that acted a little differently. So instead of flipping the pieces, it would remove them from the board. Hmm. And so that's where the bug in the lunch bug came from. So the bug is the piece that when you capture things between two bugs, it removes all the pieces. So that doesn't actually exist in Othello, right? You, no, it doesn't. You can never subtract from the board. You can only add to it. Nope. So oh, that's a pretty interesting mechanic. Single player instead of multiplayer. Like Othello is a two-player game. Yeah. So this was a really smartly designed game. I gotta tell you, dude. Because like basically the way I made Lava Sword was the same way, almost the same way I made like we, we made Onslaught Defense. I was just like, we need a new game, and this is where my motivation's going. I didn't yeah. have any reins on it. Like I, sh- I should have pulled that back in and been like, this might not be the game we should work on right now because the games we should work on should be like the game like you described, like a, a single-player, low-performance requiring. Um, nicely like a puzzle game I think the benefits of doing a game like Lunchbug are really starting to be apparent in that we basically have a game that is pretty much balanced and complete from a mechanical perspective mm-hmm. like the game model does all the stuff the game model needs to do 
Um, the game is challenging, and you know if you're really good at it, you can play it for a really long time and get a really high score. And so now all we need to do is wrap a bow on it and call it done, right? And I feel like for a game like Lava Sword, um, we need to spend a lot of time making a lot of content to make it more interesting. Like you need yep. a bunch of different level backgrounds and a bunch of different bad guys, and then you need to design each level. Yep. And then maybe have like an overarching storyline, like oh, we got to go through the forest and the cave and then the tunnels, then get to the castle and slay the boss. Yeah, it's kind of an expensive game. And I think we've talked before a little bit with Arno maybe about how indie developers really need to leverage what they can to give themselves an edge. And this is like the, the design of Lava Sword is not angled in a way that is advantageous to us. Whereas I feel like Lunchbug is. Like the amount of time that we put into Lunchbug would go much further than the amount of time we put into Lava Sword, I really feel. Mm. It's yeah, more accessible, it's, it's more friendly, more people are going to like it, and it's the content pipeline is just almost non-existent. Yeah, content pipeline is like such a big factor when you're a two-man team. And like you could make one new piece, which you might need one graphic for, and you know, maybe some polish and stuff, but like that one new piece could fundamentally change the way the game works, and that's really powerful totally. too, is because like in other games, you might have to have a lot of content to be able to have that kind of an effect on the game gameplay you know right like imagine trying to extend skyrim you know I mean? <laughs> right like, new weapons new models new gallant balancing new dungeons i mean like come on yeah dudes. if you were like we're gonna give the you this new weapon that um lets you fly for 10 seconds at a time or something like i think the past has proven that that would break the game in many ways but they're <laughs> gonna do it anyway because <laughs> it's either fun or hilarious so yeah but yes, it, like if it's important to you that your game does not break, then... Although I guess we could break Lunchbug if we introduced like a really powerful piece that just removed a bunch of other pieces from the board. Yeah, yeah. No matter what, and then basically made it so you could play infinitely or something. Yeah, that would be a game-breaking piece. Is like a piece you put down and every other piece disappears. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really cool, though, is when you have these these variables that, that really, really make a big difference, you know? You have to play with them very carefully. It does have a really good balance. Um, it's... It's a clever game. I can't wait to get out there and start to get feedback on it. Yeah, thanks. It's fun. Well, that's all for this week. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. We're going to play you out with a song from Joshua Morris's upcoming album, Waveform 3, called Mr. Fusion Spy. Thanks for listening.
Windows some